Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how the world's most fascinating people have hustled their way to the top. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit and owner of Powder Mountain Ski Resort in Utah. And today I have the pleasure to sit down with one of the pioneers in the clean beauty movement, Greg Renfew. For those listening, Greg Renfew is an entrepreneur, businesswoman, and the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter, a brand that has led and pioneered the clean beauty movement. And they have redefined the way makeup and skincare products are formulated and sold today. The clean beauty revolution is here and it's bigger than ever before. And so we're really excited to dive into it. Please help me welcome to the studio, Greg Renfew. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate you making it out this way. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Of course. And uh, I'm really, really blown away with what you've built with Beauty Counter. Congratulations. It's it's really special. Um, And, you know, it's sort of throwaway when people are like, oh, they pioneered clean beauty, but you really did pioneer clean beauty. That wasn't a term that was in the marketplace. There wasn't really a company servicing this when you guys got started in 2010, correct? So, you know, when I started Beauty Counter, I think I was looking at the market and there were some eco-friendly brands out there marketing themselves as green. And they, they won, they weren't really commercially viable because I think the average consumer wasn't necessarily looking for quote unquote green products, but also They didn't work that well. They didn't look that good. And I thought there's an opportunity to bring high performing, great products into the market that are significantly safer. And I think we coined the, I I can't promise you that we coined the the phrase clean, but I can promise you that, that no one was saying it when we started. And I believe we did because, you know, someone needed to change the industry. Or, you know, it's easy to do things small and to have a small idea. It's much, much harder to tool uh, organization to, to go after something large, but, uh, you know, and not to jump forward, but, you know, I know that you've been a serial entrepreneur for, for quite some time. I read that your first business was was a house cleaning business <laughs> yeah. in Nantucket. Is that accurate? <laughs> so, you know, you, you like boats, right? Because you, you guys have, have done some incredible events on boats. So I, when I was in college, I 
there's a really hot guy uh, that I had a crush on who told me that he had gone in this thing called Semester at Sea mm-hmm. and that you could circumnavigate the globe on a boat with 700 kids. I thought that sounds amazing. And my mother said, you know, you're welcome to go, but I can't afford to send you beyond. I can afford to pay your normal tuition, but I can't provide the extra couple thousand dollars. And so that summer, a friend had invited me to go to Nantucket and I started cold calling all of the real estate companies. I needed to make like $3,000 which I know to some people doesn't seem like a lot of money, but actually $3,000 when you're 18 is a lot of money. So I started a house cleaning company with a couple of friends and we made a bunch of money that summer and I was able to go on semester to see. That was my, my end game on that one. And was that the first business that you started? Was that your first sort of like independent hustle company? Totally. Or, I mean, that yeah. was my first hustle. I think that, you know, I was, I grew up in a family where my mom and dad got divorced when I was young and they struggled to make, make ends meet at times. And so I always had something I was doing. I was always like catering or babysitting or whatever. But I think this was my first thing that I actually started from scratch and built. And then, you know, I read about it was the the uh, the, the wedding, the wedding company. Yep, the wedding list. The wedding list. Yes. Yep. And and uh, that was in, I believe, like early 2000s. Um, was that your first entrepreneurial business after school? Did you have some jobs before that? Or where, what were you doing running up to that? So when I graduated from college, my mother, again, my mom, uh, gave me a briefcase and a check and said, you're on your own, like, you know, figure it out. And I, so I went to work for an advertising firm for like a couple months. And then like a lot of people I know, or people who are not lying, I ra- racked up some credit card debt mm-hmm. and I called my mother and I said, I can't pay my Amex bill. And she's like, oh, well, time to get a new job. So I took a job with Xerox Corporation, actually selling fax machine copy or combos. I mean, this dates me, but I was like, you know, I, I it was an incredible sales training program. And so that was my first real corporate job. And, but on the side, you know, I was going to all these weddings and I always, just, I always have a, I always have a side hustle. So yeah. I started a bridesmaids dress company trying to sell wedding dresses, which led me to actually understanding there was an opportunity in wedding registry. Yeah. And by the way, the Xerox machine piece, like myself and my co-founders, three out of the four of us had jobs where we did direct sales or cold calls. And like, I think it's so insanely valuable, actually. One, just to just like, that's the red ocean. You know, it's like there's, it's, it's not, you don't have a, an ingenious, um, you know, uh, take on the market that ultimately, if you don't have the experience of like cold calling, taking all the meetings, getting doors slammed in your face, pretty hard to like start out as an entrepreneur. It's so true. And I, it's so funny. A friend of mine today announced that she sold her beauty business, which I was super psyched for her. And I said, you know, it's particularly important to me to congratulate you because I actually know how hard it is to build a business. And I was, and this woman called me this morning from London and wanted some advice on her company, which was so flattering. And I was saying like, just even get to a million dollars of sales for anyone to build any size of business. You know, it is hard. Everyone does slam the door in your face. And I don't care whether you're selling Xerox copiers or you're trying to create a new beauty brand or you're selling widgets. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I think it is part of the the game. And what I always try to tell the people around me is you're going to get like nine no's to every one yes, but that one yes can really make a difference. And you just got to stay the course. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's humbling. I mean, I literally had people slam the door in my face and I was selling in the jewelry district of New York City. And I, I mean, I literally would lock and it was just slam, slam, slam. But yeah. you know, it makes you stronger. I don't want to rush through your, you know, the, the beginning stages of your career, but Beauty Counter is really, you know, I wasn't aware of uh, the mission and how important the mission and how important the advocacy is for you. But um, what was the origin story? What was the initial you know, inspiration for you where you started getting the inkling that you needed to start this company? So one of my really good friends suggested that I watch An Inconvenient Truth back in 2006. And it was the first time I watched that film and it was a real wake up call for me. I started, 
you know, she kept saying, like, Greg, you're very outspoken. You're super direct. You know a lot of people. Like, you need to be a voice for change in the environmental health movement. Honestly, I didn't really know much about it. I was living in the city. And so I so I watched that film, and it really hit me like a ton of bricks. So I started becoming really focused on recycling and, you know, all the, all the things that I've, everyone else, all those paces that people have gone through trying to be more environmentally friendly. But, but sort of subsequent to watching that over the next couple of years, I watched so many of my friends getting sick. Mm-hmm girls and guys in their 20s, 30s, you know, getting diagnosed with different types of cancer. I had a number. My best friend could never bring a baby to term, ended up having, thankfully, being able to use a surrogate to have a child. I had other friends who were giving birth to kids with significant health issues. And I think I was I was a full-time working mama at, by the time that I sort of really came to this. And it was, I guess, around 2007, 2008. And I had a, had a full-time caregiver for my daughter as I was a CEO of a children's clothing company at the time. And mm-hmm. she was diagnosed with a non-HPV related cervical cancer and died at 31 years old, 10 months later in my arms. And it, all those things together. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was awful. And, and I think what it really did for me, all of those things combined made me realize like something's gone terribly awry. And what is it that's changing everything that's making us sick and making the environment sick? And I started to do a lot of research. And, and, you know, I couldn't believe some of the stuff that I was learning when I was, when I was doing my research for this interview, but you know, the 10, 10,000 plus chemicals that, you know, we know have some sort of negative effect potentially to human health that are all in many of these things that we put on our bodies and in our bodies on a daily basis here in the United States, correct? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so the beauty industry, so, so we've introduced over 85,000 chemicals into commerce since World War II and yeah. the beauty industry is governed by legislations that predates World War II. It's the last time a major federal law was passed was in 1938. It was part of the Federal Food Fed, federal food and Drugs Cosmetics mm-hmm. Act. And it's like a, one and a half pages long. And I, I think for a brief moment in time, cosmetic and personal care products were safe for health. But then all these chemicals were introduced and less than 10% have ever been tested for safety on mm-hmm. human health. And a lot of those chemicals, to your point, about 10 to 12,000 of those are commonly used. And and, and and when we talk about this, I want, because I'm sure a lot of people that listen to you are, are men as well. It's not just like women's lipstick. It's, it's your deodorant. It's mm-hmm. your shave cream. It's your bubble bath. It's the sunscreen. It's anything that we're putting on our bodies every single day. Yeah, aluminum and antiperspirant. Yes, and, exactly. You know, all the, the 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 running experiment of most sunscreens and what we're putting on our bodies, right? Like um and and I also, you know, heard you say that I think the EU banned something like 1300 chemicals whereas the US in that same time frame has banned about 30 is yeah. this in the last like 10 years or when so. When I started Beauty Counter, the US had banned 11 and the EU had banned close to 1400 or they had banned or restricted either way uh, we're, we're dangerously far behind the times. And mm-hmm. we're now up to a whopping 30. I think they, they banned triclosan and, and some of these, you know, that, you know, that was used in all the antibacterial soaps. Um, but, you know, we have a really long way to go in this country. Yeah. And what I love about you and about your, you know, deep belief in your, your, your style of leadership is, you know, you weren't aiming to create, you know, a nice venture back startup that you could sell and, you know, a cool little, you know, natural beauty company. You wanted to change beauty. You, your intention was to change personal yeah. care, right? You know, it's interesting. I Years ago, someone gave me a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, and mm-hmm. they talked about, they used a couple of examples. You know, one was Cirque du Soleil versus the Ringling Brothers yeah. and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Another one was Two Buck Chuck. And I think these are brands that have gone into an existing market that is 
obviously saturated and has been around, you know, sizable industry. And they've sort of redefined what it is to be a leader in that mm -hmm. space. And I think that's what we set out to do. It's not that the industry didn't exist. Obviously, there's a multi, multi-billion, you know, many tens of billions in beauty sold every year. But how do we take an existing industry and lead it to a better place? And that's what we've tried to do with Beauty Counter. It wasn't you know, our mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone, not beauty counter products into the hands of everyone. But how do we actually transform an industry that was in, you know, in great need of of innovation, transformation and disruption? And that's what we set out to do. And most of us still don't know, you know, about the things that are in the the the, the products that we're either using or consuming. So I'm curious for you when you first started going out and, and raising the money and building the team, was, was it where you met with you know, a lot of excitement and support. Was it hard for you to get people on board initially? You know, it was a little bit, it's, it's funny because last time around when I had the wedding list, it was incredibly difficult to raise capital. I think when I was, I was really young, I was a woman and I was talking about weddings. I mean, you know, just do this like, it's like, you know, triple threat. I mean, you know, men were looking at me like their eyes would glaze over the second I would open my mouth. And yet it was still like a $40 billion industry in the U.S. And we were actually trying to convince people that you would buy wedding gifts online. I mean, go figure, to even have that yeah. conversation today. Of course, no one who wants to go to a store to buy a wedding present, you know what you were comfortable spending, you want to get done in a click. Mm -hmm. I think when I went out to raise money for Beauty Counter, I think I had a bit of a track record, so that helped. I was much more confident. I think one of the mistakes that first-time entrepreneurs do when they go out to raise capital um, is that they they that they are so worried about getting the money that they don't interview the the people back. And you know, there were a couple of meetings I went to. Someone begged me for a meeting, and they were texting the whole time. So I was like, you know what, guys, you're wasting my time. I just am like, thank you so much. Like, you're not actually going to be able to bid to be, you know, part of one of my investors because you don't have the respect for me having sat there, you know, after requesting meeting. And so yeah. I think because I had a better attitude and because I could clearly articulate the white space and the need for change and every single person, you know, and every one of us directly or indirectly has been touched by one of these health issues we face as a nation today. So that, that always struck a chord with mm. people. So it's never easy raising money. Um, but but I was able to do it this time around. And and what about the supply chain? Was that was there a lot of convincing for you know you're a new company, you're a startup, you want to formulate these things in a totally different manner than they're used to? Was that was that some arm twisting, or how did you convince your totally. suppliers to get on board? You know, I mean, first of all, no one was asking them for these things, mm -hmm. and so first and foremost, most people with whom I came into contact back in the day thought I was totally crazy. Like they were like, no one cares about this. And I, and I said, well, they will. They're gonna, they're gonna care about this. And the second that the consumer knows, I mean, you said earlier, you know, the reality is, like, less than twenty percent of Americans still have any idea that there are harmful chemicals in the products that they use every day. So, convincing people that they wanted to build a business with us was hard. And and for for a long time, they hated us. They used to call us brutal counter instead of beauty counter, brutal. And that was because we would go through like hundreds of submissions because we were asking them to come up with new ingredients that they'd never used, and we wanted the same performance. I mean, at the end of the day. You know, if it doesn't work and you don't love it, you're not going to come back. I might expose you to the truth, but at the end of the day, you want the performance. And so it was really difficult. But over time, they saw our, you know, our business explode. And then they saw all these other brands coming in and handing them our products and saying, hey, we need to follow their lead. And so now now they listen. <laughs> yeah. But it took a while. Of course. For sure. And, and you guys have outperformed 
every traditional beauty company in the growth and in the pace of sales and all this stuff. We were talking about we've been seeing a beauty counter on the buses locally mm. here in Los Angeles. It's um, one of our associates. I know my son yeah. was like, hey, man, that's my mom's company. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm finally cool with my son. Yeah, Occasionally great. these things happen. You got on a bus. <laughs> exactly. You know, your son thinks it's awesome. He was yelling at the bus driver. That's of course, amazing. the person was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but anyway, that's good. No, I love that. And, um, you know, part of it, I imagine, must be your independent consultants, right? You have a, a, a veritable army of yes. men and women out there. I imagine more women than men. But is it I would four, say how a, many? an army of women with a few good men. <laughs> I like that. Okay, great. So, and we, so how many people are we talking about that are out there like, you know, you know, second, the primary and secondary income, you know, representing beauty counter. Yeah. So over the years, we've, I think, created about a little over 60,000 jobs. And currently we have about 45,000 women in, in North America that are actively selling products and building businesses with us. And it, it's interesting because most of them have never been in sales in any capacity in any company in their lives, but they really believed in being part of a movement and they wanted to be educators and they mm. wanted to provide solutions through, you know, I would say that we use commerce as an engine for change and they are able to earn an income that is meaningful at times to their family. Some of some of them, you know, it's not about the money. Other people, they're trying to, they're struggling to make ends meet. And maybe that's the difference between a private school education or a public or just you know, comfortably going back to school shopping or holiday shopping. But for most of them, it is that combination of I can be part of meaningful change. I'm watching people around me get sick. I want this to stop and I'm going to help, you know, pass laws. And I'm also going to have a great side hustle that allows me to make some good money and turn to my husband and say, hey, I got dinner tonight. Amazing. And was that part of the thinking originally when you started the company? Was that part of your vision or did that come later? It actually wasn't part of my original vision. You know, I came out of the department store. My most recent jobs, you know, both with the wedding list, um, I had a partnership with Nordstrom. And then when I ran Best in Company, I had a partnership with Neiman Marcus. And I was watching the distribution of products through department stores waning. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, look, department stores are like, they're over. Yeah. Sorry if you work in a department store. But like for me, it's it's not that they will completely cease to exist, but they kind of they're kind of dead. And so and I also knew that I was gonna be battling for shelf space with the top brands who, by the way, didn't want this story to get out. And so I was trying to figure out how can I tell a story? Obviously, e-commerce was always gonna be a big part of our business. But back at the time, you know, you know, if you go back eight, eight or nine years, you know, it was really difficult for people to make an initial purchasing decision on skincare or cosmetics online. Once they bought it, yeah, they'll replenish all day long. And so a friend of mine said, have you considered direct sales, to which I literally was like, hell no, you know, because I thought that was a totally antiquated industry. But then I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like we can power this through people and create economic opportunities and change an industry like home run. Like it took me literally like a three hour, three hours of looking at it to decide like this is definitively the way to go. And was it Tupperware or what was the company that initially did this like in the sixties with the- with, Avon. It was Avon. Avon okay. actually was founded about 125 years ago. And, and before women even had the right to vote, they were able to earn, you know, financial independence as an Avon representative. And, and you know, it was such a forward thinking company. I think, unfortunately, like department stores, I think many of the direct sales companies did not evolve with the times and didn't mm. realize that you know, today's consumers shop single brands through multiple channels and independent consultants don't look like what they might have looked like, you know, 50 years ago that they've evolved and they're primarily moving forward in a digital world. And so you, they didn't evolve. I mean, it's, it's not dissimilar to traditional retail. Yeah. And I think the stigma for, for independent sales consultants or, you know, multi-channel marketing, it, it, I think most of those products are either one outdated, like, you know, using the, the same chemicals that you created your company to avoid um, or things that are like, you know, nutraceuticals or whatever. Right. Ultimately, you know, when, when I hear you talk about it, I think about like, 
you know, the next the next iteration of uh, of like, and, 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 I, and I don't mean this in a derogatory term whatsoever, but Tom's Shoes. Right. Tom's was this first product that allowed us as consumers, for me at least, for my generation, for sure. to like express my values through the footwear I was wearing. You know, you giving these these women and a few good men the opportunity to not only earn an income, but to, you know, represent the future. I think that you've, you know, enabled your customers as storytellers, which I imagine has an incredible exponential impact on your business. I think, you know, yeah, I, I mean, look, I think that to your point, companies like Tom's did an amazing job. And actually, Candace, who is one of the people who ran Love Tom's Candace. from the beginning, is on our board, has been. Oh, I didn't know that. In fact, amazing. I'm actually interviewing at our corporate offices early, uh, later on today. Amazing. She and I are super close. But um, she and Blake did an amazing job building that business. But I think at the end of the day, you know, for us, and I think there are a few companies over the years that, you know, I was, I was saying to a bunch of suits yesterday, uh, you know, finance guys, that I was like, wait, so, you know, what Bernie Madoff did, that was like the ultimate pyramid scheme. And you you look at, uh, we, we, are, we sell product. And yeah. what I think direct selling companies have done wrong is that they've often, to your point, they've either, they've overpromised and underdelivered in terms of the efficacy of product, or they're selling a business opportunity, not a product. I mean, mm-hmm. Avon, the end of the day, they sell product and they get paid on the sale of products. There are other companies out there that are saying, hey, you pay me 5,000, I'm going to show you how to get 50,000. That's not us. And I yeah. think, unfortunately, People somehow get caught up in a few bad eggs, but somehow we still support all the financial institutions, even though there are a few bad eggs out there, too. So to me, it's like, can we stop? You know, one of the things I think as a woman that is unfortunate, and I think it's also often women to women, is that we don't applaud each other for making the choices we do. And and as you, you know, I'm older than you are, but when 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 I look at so many of my friends who've chosen to be at home, that you know, they feel insufficient because mm. they've chosen to be at home. And then you look at the, my friends like me that are working full time, and then you feel like, well, I'm a shitty mom because I work full time. I don't care about my children. And and the reality is that most people me, most people need to work, and and it's okay to do either choice is fine. And we mm-hmm. women, and men, but we well men too because people will always come up to me and ask me like, you know, who's taking care of your children? I'm like, I am so on top of it with my kids. You can't even imagine. But we need to applaud each other for making different choices. And I think that's part of I think what's fed into this negativity about um, about direct selling is that you know, God forbid a woman asks for the order or asks for money. I mean, you know, that's, it seems crazy, but it's really the truth. And we do that to each other and it needs to stop. Well, I totally agree and really applaud you for, you know, empowering such a huge community of people through your business. It's amazing. And to that point, I wanted to ask you a bit about the advocacy work. I know that, you know, that was a pillar that you started the business on. Um, I imagine you're also doing some stuff in Washington too. Would love to, would love to hear. So when I started the company, it was really, okay, first and foremost, we need to educate because people were largely unaware. And, you know, we all know that education, you know, knowledge is power. And so, you know, and I do feel like we sell a beauty product, but actually what we educate on is a cleaner lifestyle in general. And I find that, you know, it's like I came in here and I'm like, oh my God, like why you have these toxic cleaning products in your, I'm not going to name the brand, (laughs) but I don't do that. But, you know, it's like, I want you to lead, I want you to be healthy. Like I want you to be able to have kids when you want to have kids and have a great lifestyle. And I want you to live till you're, you know, 95 and drop dead in your sleep, but like peacefully. That's like, that's Mm -hmm. the ideal world. And I think we, we don't do enough of that. So I think when we educate, we try to go beyond just our product line to say, here are 10 ways, you know, I always say to people, just take your shoes off at the door. That in and of itself will remove, you know, will lessen your toxic load like significantly. We also obviously wanted to provide solution and we are a for-profit company. And I think one of the reasons we're for-profit is because I think that consumer brands can move markets faster than legislation will ever change. And so you need to, you know, I say to Nike, if someone says just do it or if Nike tells you to do something or Apple does or whatever, Uber, pick the brand, people listen. And Mm -hmm. I think that that was important to us. And I am also a capitalist and I believe that you can do well and do good simultaneously. But the most important thing for me was when I went to raise capital was 
I'm going to fight hard in Washington to change the laws because in the absence of cosmetic reform and the absence of more health protective legislation, all Americans are still unnecessarily subjected to toxic chemicals every day. And for those for whom, you know, the price point is too high or they don't even know we exist or the access isn't there, like we need to fight for them as much as we're fighting for our consumers. And that means that the laws need to change and the the FDA needs to be able to have the power to recall product. And we've got to start screening chemicals for safety before they go onto the shelves. And what was the, the hair product that, uh, that you know, couldn't, yeah, couldn't really be recalled because the FDA doesn't have the authority? There have been a couple of examples. One was the Brazilian blowout that had yeah. like 40 percent formaldehyde. And it was it was harmful to women getting their hair straightened and certainly to women of color where they were using a lot of straightening agents. But it was also really harmful to the people working in these salons that were heating it up and like breathing in formaldehyde mm-hmm. all day long. And people were getting sick. I mean, there's also been an example of when hair care, they've had over 20,000 complaints for hair loss, mm-hmm. permanent hair loss and, and children and women. No one's doing anything about it because well, they no, can't. There's no legal. Right. Uh, it's not like, illegal. Yeah, to, that's to, unbelievable. Right. Um, and so I'm curious, similarly to, you know, we're here in California and you see how a lot of the auto industry is shifting to meet the California standards. Do you think that there's a state opportunity if the federal, you know, doesn't doesn't seem to move as fast these days? So we work on both the state and federal level. And okay. certainly we are very lucky to be living in the state of California because Prop 65 does really protect consumers in ways that don't uh, others don't. I think where where they've come to a standstill in, in actually passing new and improved legislation has been over who has who has the ultimate right. Is it state, you know, state preemption or, you know, does the federal government govern the decision making and what is and is not safe for health. And I think that's where they've come to a standstill. So we fight hard. You know, we helped pass um, in Hawaii um, a bill on sunscreen because all of these chemical sunscreens are, are literally killing the coral reefs. We've been mm-hmm. focused on the salon workers bill and the fragrance bill. So we're looking at it. And we also we also fight with our allies in the space, other B Corps and other sort of people that are trying to remove toxic chemicals on things that have nothing to do with us, toys for children, toxic chemicals on kids. It's not skincare or cosmetics, but we believe we can use our voices to move markets and to hopefully pass legislation. So we do it all the time. Yeah, that's wild, though. It sounds like it's almost like a constitutional law issue for who gets to decide, like, what is healthy and not healthy at a federal or a state level. Like, it sounds like federal might actually come if the state were to pass something saying, hey, this is banned. Federal might actually say, no, it's not. Is that exactly. What, is that what you're exactly. I, I didn't know that. That's why. It's a, that's the that's the problem. Is that I think our you know, my opinion is that the the FDA right now is not equipped to actually screen the, the chemicals fast enough, and then the limits are oftentimes you know. Look, we all know there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's politics and politics, and mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, you know, who's paying those bills ultimately? Who's putting sure. people in office? And and look, I you know I've learned a lot, and and I knew nothing about the whole world of. Washington and politics, but I've learned a lot. It, it is complicated. It's not an easy slam dunk for anyone to make the decisions. And there's, they're trying to look at all stakeholders, but I think we could do a better job of protecting the health of Americans. Totally. Uh, and, and I really appreciate that those are, those are pillars that you stand on, things that are good for the people, things that are good for the planet. Um, another, another, you know, leadership trait that I, that I, uh, I took from, you know, reading and, and, and learning more about you and the way that you work is I love that your philosophy of nothing about us without us, you know, it sounded like that was something that's always been a part of your model, but when it comes to diversity or creating products, could you share a little bit about how you think about building your team or 
you know, building products for people by including them? You know, it's interesting because I think that, one, I think that when you look at your community at large, at, at large as a company, you need to look at how they together can help you solve the problems of the world. Because, you know, I, I always say, like, I'm just an ordinary woman, but I do extraordinary work because I work with so many amazing people. And I think that anyone that thinks that they're not ordinary, they're kind of kidding themselves, right? We're all relatively ordinary. But I think in terms of, you know, including people in the process and looking at it, I think one of the things we've been really trying to focus on is, you know, the face of this country is changing, you know, in terms of race and culture and, you know, in, you know, all the things we all know that, 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 that everything is changing very quickly. And I think one of the things we've really been focused on is, you know, what can we do to make sure that we're serving more people and that people can identify with our brand and that they're part of the solution and making sure that when we're creating products. So, for example, if I'm creating a product for a woman who's African-American is someone on my PD team, actually African-American and thinking about it from her lens because I'm white and I'm going to be looking at it through my lens and, and, and really trying to focus on, you know, different ages, different people, different points of view in our corporate offices. I think, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of now is like our, th you know, if I look at our executive team, like our CFO, our COO and our chief commercial officer, all three women of color, they're all, you know, they're women, by the way, go figure, yeah. you know, that in and of itself is a huge accomplishment, but also, but, but I'm also very, like, I'm a very pro-women woman, but I, I do love men, you know, I have, a, I have a husband, I like him most of the time, yeah. but just in general, like, I think we, we do better work when we work together. And I think when we put all the voices at the table to serve the needs of today's consumer, that's when you are successful as a company. Totally. And I'd love to touch on that a little bit, just women in leadership. You know, I, I, uh, we, we at Summit, we never do like a women's CEO panel if it's about a specific topic and you're the expert. I don't think your gender has anything to do with the, the setup in a sense. Um, I'm very curious though, like it's 2019. Um, it sounds like, you know, a lot has changed since when you first were out there trying to, you know, raise money for your, your, your wedding uh, uh, registry company, which is like a huge marketplace and you were a first mover. And for me as a capitalist, I'm like, wow, that's a very obvious investment to make. But it sounds like you did have to deal with a lot of you know, just call it what it is, sexism. Yeah. Um, in 2019, what's the, what does it look like for you right now as like a leader in business and, you know, as a woman with a female led team, like what are the, what is, I'm sure that there's some things that, you know, I don't know or understand. Yeah. Well, thank God I have the name Greg because it probably opens more doors. <laughs> My parents did that to me, but maybe I should be thankful for that. I think, you know, look, I don't think it's changed as much as people realize. I think that huh. the talk is changing. I do think people are talking about it. I mean, I think that, you know, the most recent, you know, presidential election lit a fire under the asses of a bunch of women. And so they got out there and started talking about it. But I think at the end of the day, you know, it's still it's interesting. I was just at a at a girls school uh, looking at it for my youngest daughter and they were stowing the statistics of, you know, just women in all different fields and not just in sort of, you know, the, the corporate world, but just across the board. And it's still very much dominated by men. And what's also been interesting for me is even as the founder and the CEO, I had a, I had a former colleague, I won't, it doesn't matter who it is. And, he, you know, he went completely rogue on me. He was a senior executive member of our team. And when he was in my office, you know, in tears, as I was letting him go, he's just, you know, I said to him, you know, how do we get here? And he said, well, you know, honestly, like, I thought I was going to save the sort of save the day because I, I looked at you as this woman. And I thought, you know, I don't think you had it. What didn't think you had the chops. And I said, you know, well, you've, you've done me. Thank you for the gift, because I promise you I'm never going to let this happen in my own company again. But second of all, like you were dumb enough to take the job with a CEO you didn't believe in. And you were dumb enough not to believe in me because I was a woman and shame on you twice. So I hope you've learned a lot. And I wasn't even mad at him. I was just mm -hmm. like, wow, this is it's sad. I do think it's still happening all the time. And, 
you know, but I think that I, I'm hopeful and I'm not an angry feminist. I believe that we need to join forces with men to move ourselves forward. And I don't want to be a victim. I just want to take what it is female, like what I have as a woman and make the world better. And, you know, there there are some pros to being a woman too, you know, and, and how do you play their strengths? I think the one thing that is lacking in women across this country and just probably globally that, that I think prohibits them sometimes from excelling in business or in fields of engineering or whatever it is, it's just a lack of confidence. And I think if we mm. could do one thing for our daughters and for younger women is to tell them that you've got this and it'll help them propel forward. We owe it to women to give them more confidence to let them succeed because they certainly have the capability. You're a very practical radical. You know, like, I, it's a very radical idea, and you're taking a very practical means to achieve it. You weren't like, oh, we're going to get chemicals out of everybody's stuff that are, right. you know, that are, that are, you know, harming us. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to march on Washington or start a nonprofit or, you know, like you, you know, things that typically lose money shrink and things that typically make money grow. Yeah. And so by having a market-based solution where you're employing tens of thousands of women and you're, you know, like building the products that are replacing those products with the chemicals in them, if you can affect the market demand, I mean, like it is such a incredible story. Well, I appreciate that's a good, that's a new, new term and I like it. And no, I, I think, I think you're right. I do think that oftentimes when there are problems in the world and certainly sometimes I think one of the mistakes that nonprofits can make or activists can make is they they approach everything with anger and shaming and p finger pointing, and it just doesn't really get us very far. So I can blame the big conglomerates. I mean, whatever, you know, they, they made those mistakes a lot. They didn't even realize they were making mistakes when they started creating these products. And it's not easy. The capital markets are unforgiving. So, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a large company and I've been making a product for 100 years and everyone expects it, you know, to be exactly that consistently and exactly that color, texture, scent, and all of a sudden, I got to take out half the ingredients. Well, I can tell you in beauty, it, that's super complicated. And mm. then, you know, God forbid you lose a point of, you know, a shareholder, you know, value that your stock goes down by one tenth of percent and the whole world's after you. It's it's not easy. So how do we lead by example? How do we show everyone that it's possible you can do better? And how do you bring a huge community of people along with you for the ride? And that's what we've really been trying to do all along. And I want to talk about, you know, where you go from here, but I do kind of want to double back a little bit. You've gotten to work with some really amazing women, Martha Stewart, Jessica Alba, um, uh, the Hilfiger family, yep. et cetera. I'm curious, you know, through these experiences, were there some lessons that you learned or some, or some traits that you picked <laughs> up along the way that you apply to the way that you manage? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, th I do believe in servant leadership and that is something that I probably learned from from Martha's is she and I differ there that I don't think in today's market. And again, Martha's, you know, a lot older than I am and has done an extraordinary job in, in many, many ways. But I think the sort of leading with fear or, you know, just sort of my way is the highway doesn't really work as well in today's marketplace. And I think that I took that from her because I think I, you know, I lived in fear when I was working for Martha. I think everyone wanted to please her, but it was, it's difficult to please her. And she's exceptionally talented. Um, but I think it's it's a management style that today is is difficult. So I think that's something that I learned from her is, you know, trying to lead by example and being in the trenches with it. She, she worked incredibly hard. So I don't mm -hmm. want to um, imply she wasn't in the trenches with the troops. But but it was, you know, I've learned to get better at saying, hey, you know, um, I really like that blue shirt. Have you considered making it in black as well, as opposed to why the heck didn't you think about making it in black in the first place? Like sure. I've learned to to lead that way. And I think that's something I learned from her through, through my own personal experience. I, I think I've also... Um, I've also learned that I do best working with people uh, for whom they that they 
that they're open to hearing feedback and that, that I've learned to be um, desensitize myself to say it's okay to criticize me and to learn. I learn from it. I recently, someone made a comment about me in our um, independent consultant network the other day that I wasn't, I wasn't getting what was making them tick. And instead of, mm-hmm. instead of getting mad, which I would, would have been a normal thing that I would have done years ago and getting really defensive, I was like, okay, let's, let's lean into that. Like, wh- how have I, how have I missed, you know, how, where do I need to redirect? And I think I've learned from working with people who everyone around them always says yes to them. And everyone always tells them that they're right, that it actually doesn't make you the best leader. I think the best leaders are those that are committed to serving those that are beneath them or side by side with them, however you want to look at it. And those that are willing to take constructive criticism and to know where they're strong and to know where they're weak and empower everyone around them, knowing that it takes a village to be successful. And then there is no one person that's going to make or break anything. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you're only as strong as you are in your relationship with your troops, so to speak. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. It makes total sense. We, we like to say that, uh, you know, the singular, singular charismatic leadership is a great weakness of any organization. No, it's true. And yeah. I think, and I think, you know, again, I think the entire organization with Martha was built around her. I think when I worked with Susie Hilfiger, um, specifically when I worked for the Hilfigers, you know, I, you know, I think one of the things I was cocky, I came out of the wedding list and mm-hmm. I kind of thought I was the shit. And I think at the end of the day, I've learned that I was disrespectful to her and I ended up getting fired and not really because <laughs> no I didn't way. do well. Yeah, I mean, I got fired via messenger in front of my entire team. That was that was a humbling moment. Let me tell you, if nothing, you know, if that yeah. doesn't humble you, but you know, at the end of the day, I think I didn't know how to manage her. She's a creative person, and I didn't know how to get the best out of her without making, you know, without making it my way or making her feel stupid. And now I regret that, and I've learned. I learned a lot. I mean, look, you learn from every mistake you make, and I've been, you know, all three of those women are extraordinary women doing great work in the world. And I was, I was so lucky to have had a chance to work with all of them. It sounds like uh, you use emotional vulnerability as a leadership trait. It sounds like by sharing and being real about what you're going through or like being open to that criticism, you allow, you, you, it sounds like you kind of showcase the type of, you know, um, perspective that you're looking for from the people that you work with. I think that specifically to women on this one, I think there's a dearth of leadership of women who are leaders who actually show what what their lives are really like. They always mm. present perfectly polished. They have the perfect outfit on. Their hair is always perfect. Like everything is perfect, perfect, perfect. They're like they're presenting something that is totally inaccessible to women, right? It's not it's not possible. And I think when you, I remember years ago I spoke at a women's conference and I my assistant at the time made messed up the time and I ended up having to go on stage with like my hair barely like done. I had no makeup on. I mean, I looked like I was a mess. I ran across Boston trying to make it to this conference. But I got on stage and I was like, look, I'm the only CEO of a beauty company that would ever show up like this, but I owe you, I owe it to you guys because I'm here to... Sh-. And it's like, they went nuts because it was like, oh, you're real. Like, oh, yeah. you have a bad day too. Oh, you're, you know, you're in a fight with your husband or you're, you know, you forgot to button your top button of your pants. Like I can be more like her. And I think we need to do a better job of showing women that like, it's not always pretty every day and you don't, none of us look perfect. Even celebrities look like terrible some days. You know, I say yeah. like the supermodel doesn't even look like herself. But what, what we're asking women to be is not what they are most of the time, who they are. The Photoshop magazine version yeah. of all of us. Yeah. It's just not, I mean, that's just not realistic. I mean, I have days I think I look pretty cute and I have days when I look terrible. I have days when I'm happy. I have days when I love my husband. I always say yeah. I love you, but it doesn't mean I have to like you today. Mm-hmm. And I have tough, I have moments where I've sent my kids to school and I forgot to put the lunch, food in the lunchbox. I mean, that's just life, you know? And so h- how do you help people know that you can be aspirational enough, but accessible. I think that we need those types of leaders more, more often than not. It seems like we're at an all time low for public rational sense making. And we're constantly being told 
opposite sides of the same issues and having to make sense of which part we think is you know true for us like sure these chemicals are bad how bad are they or uh, you know yes you know I want you know to to use beauty counter products but I've been using Bobby Brown for 20 years and it gets me the look that I want or the right. feel that I want so for you I mean I imagine you know over the last 10 years you've really distilled your messaging and your storytelling and the way that you communicate why this is so important to people um, share that with us. Like, well, how do you, how do you think about this? How do you communicate this to people at this moment in time? You know, I think that one of the things I say is in this crazy political environment, in this in this in this time when there's so much strife and there's so much tension, and many people I think feel out of control. One of the things I suggest to them is that these are areas in which you can actually take control over your life. So you can control what you put in your body. You can control what you put on your body, and these are choices that you can make. And so. One of the things I really try to talk about is, again, I'm not here to shame you or to scare you. I'm trying to empower you with information. I'm, I'm trying to help you make better choices on behalf of yourself and your family. And every little bit makes a difference. So, you know, one of the things that I think when I'm when I'm talking about specifically around product is to say, look, you know, if you really love that, whatever, Bobby Brown, you know, and, and look, Bobby's been a huge supporter of ours. So, you know, but, you know, if you really love that mascara that someone makes or whatever, then, then keep it. But like, what are you putting on? What lotion are you putting on your largest organ all day long? Maybe, maybe it should change that one thing. And you, if you can't afford, you know, beauty counter, have you thought about just taking some organic coconut oil and using that as your thing? That'll be a lot safer for you and your family, or you don't need to bathe your baby in a bunch of shampoo and stuff. They can just use water. They don't even mm-hmm. need it. I, I think it's trying to help people think about that. I also really try, especially with younger people. I mean, I'm talking much younger people. I try to remind them that every choice matters, that the choices you make, you're voting with your voice, you're voting with your wallet, you can take control and these things add up to your life, mm-hmm. but they also really make a difference. So what carton of milk did you buy? Did you buy, you know, did you make your almond milk at home? Did you go buy, you know, cow's milk? Like what, what, what are those choices and what does that say about you and what you believe in? I've, you know, I've sworn off fast fashion and this has been really hard for me. Like there are companies out there that make a lot of really cute clothes. and I love clothes that are super cheap. But like when I learned about what fast, fast, fast fashion was doing to the environment and the health of people, mm-hmm. I was like, look, I can, I can take that stand. So, and again, that's where I'm not voting with my wallet. So I probably didn't clear, I'm probably not articulating it in, in a succinct way, but I think it's helping people know that the choices that they make matter, that their voice matters, that their voting matters, that their wallets matter, and making it about little to your point on the Mexican president, it's it's taking an example as simple as an electric bill and helping people understand that I don't have to change the world today. Every little bit makes a difference, and they it starts to lead them to a better place. Thank you for that. I love that. Um, well, and I'm curious, you know, for you, you're such a modern woman. You have the family, and you know, you have the husband who you love and like most of the time. Sounds like my wife. <laughs> um, and and you and you clearly run this organization. You have all these people that are counting on you. And do you have practices? Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? Do you run? Do you read? What are the things that you do to help yourself stay present and relaxed and and operating at your highest self? So I think one thing that I. Um, I do believe is really true, and I say this often, but is that I do believe you can have it all, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can have it all in the same day. And so I think one of the things that puts a lot of pressure on us as women and men today is you have to be Superman or Superwoman every single day. You have to be the perfect spouse. You have to be the perfect partner. You have to be the perfect parent. You have to be an incredible CEO or employee or whatever. And that's just not realistic. So I think when I take the pressure off, there are days that I'm really leaning into family and there are days that I'm really leaning into business and I am and I can have those conversations with my children to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go on this week, but 
what I'm doing is important to me and I love it and it's important for the world and I'm proud of you and let's FaceTime tonight. And, and they've learned to, that rhythm is learned. I've learned to work with that. I mean, I think my social life is waning a little bit right now, but, but I have real friends and mm-hmm. they'll be there in a couple of years when I come out on the other end of this. I, I always take a bath and when we were going through our drought, I was literally doing like two inches of water, but somehow that calms me down. I can breathe. Yeah. I literally close the door and it's just like five minutes to myself of soaking in a bath. I think that's really important. Um, I really do try to get a good night's sleep because it is, someone said to me a long time ago that if you're going to try to create this movement and lead this movement, you're going to think about yourself as an Olympic athlete and take care of your body. Mm -hmm. So I eat really clean. I exercise often. I'm not great at meditating, but I am very good at breathing. So I guess that's a form of meditation. I've, I've, I, I feel like I'm still distracted and I try to get better with a meditation practice, but I would be lying if I said I'm really, uh, it's consistent. Um, and then I learned, you know, I also just have fun in like blasting the tunes and laughing with my kids and like taking those small moments that I think sometimes we forget, like just to have, you know, those moments where you're, you know, you're having fun. Like I mm-hmm. love to listen to music. I love to read. I love to like binge watch, you know, whatever things on Netflix. And I take those moments that are luxuries that... And again, I think if you're not putting on your pressure yourself to be perfect every single day, then those are maybe you stay up late watching a movie one night and the next night you're snuggling with your kids. But you you give yourself that space to to not be perfect all the time. And and what's next for Beauty Counter? Where are you going from here? You know, I think that we've really pioneered and led, as we talked about, the clean beauty movement. I think now, you know, what what is beyond clean look like for us? I think we've really we're looking at, okay, how do we define opportunity in a new way beyond just opportunity for independent consultants, but opportunity for the marketplace. We're looking at sustainability more holistically. We're a B Corp. So we look at triple bottom line, people, planet profit, but how do we actually attack the supply chain? So for example, we just announced our whole MICA initiative. You know, We were the first beauty brand in 40 years to actually go to India and Japan to actually visit the actual mines. And how do we create systemic change? So you know, we've just partnered with um, a foundation that's run, run out of India, um, which is really looking at how to not take the jobs away from people because they need the the income, but how do you do it differently? And not just putting a Band-Aid on by saying we're going to use synthetic mica. Like, how do we actually fix things? So I think you're going to see us um, sort of roaring a little bit louder, looking at how do we attack some of these bigger issues and how do we help other companies join us, not just in the beauty industry, but for example, on MICA, like electronics and in, you know, motor cars, these are all things that are using MICA. How do we get child labor out of that, but still create the economic opportunities for people in countries like India and China and Japan? And that's something that I think you're going to see us doing is looking more holistically at the beauty industry and, and looking at how we can actually affect change up and down supply chain and throughout the work that we do. Incredible. Well, I think that, you know, uh, we're really lucky when we get to focus on things that our kids are going to be proud of us for. And, you know, I do see this as something that is definitely on the right side of history. And, uh, you know, modern life has a lot of, you know, wonderful benefits. You know, um, the reason why, you know, we drink uh, water that has all been treated is because there used to be nasty stuff in our water. But now... We're missing our microbiome, right? Like, because we drink a bunch of dead microbes versus live microbes, like every other animal on the planet. And so I think that there's this real renaissance happening now um, in, you know, people uh, taking better care of themselves by incorporating both the best of modernity and, you know, the the true nature of our nature, right? That we are, you know, connected to this earth and there are certain things that are unhealthy for us. And it's not like rocket science here that you're... You know, you're like, hey, this known chemical is probably not something that you want to put into your skin or into your body. 
But I just wanted to thank you. I really, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and you know, uh, hope that you know we can help in every way, shape, and form. Uh, you know, get this message out there to more and more people. Well, I really appreciate you saying that, and you're absolutely right that you know we we I had a hard keep with my son on Pringles last night. I was like, dude, like, what's in the Pringle? It's not actually food. Is this actually food? Is there actually a potato in the potato chip you're eating? And I think that you know, helping people. You know, we've done so much in the name of sort of convenience and whatever. But the reality is, like, we need to go back to the basics. And you're right, we need to have more exposure to bacteria and germs and things. Those things make us stronger. And um, and I think, you know, I always say to my kids that I know you miss me sometimes and I know it's hard. My youngest daughter really has a hard time with what I'm doing. But I said, she said one time, I was, I'm embarrassed, mommy, that you're not at pickup every day. And I said, you know, Georgia, you can be sad that I'm not there. I, I totally acknowledge that. But don't be embarrassed for what I'm doing because I'm fighting hard for you and for all your friends to have a safer, better world. And I'm proud of that work. And it's it's not it's it's, it's imperfect, but I think we we need to fight for what we believe in. We need to fight for future generations and for ourselves. It's not just about the future generations. Like we need it too. I don't want to hear about people getting sick. And I think to the extent that we can all, you know, move our you know efforts together forward in a combined way, I think that the, the world will just be a much better place for all of us. Well, thank you, Greg. We really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's such a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Greg. Uh, that was a wonderful interview, and she is building a wonderful company. And uh, as is customary on Art of the Hustle, we take a couple of uh, pull quotes of wisdom from our interviewees that you know uh, really inspired me. You know, one one thing I will speak to first and foremost is I do think that that Greg is a total practical radical. Consumer brands do move minds faster than legislation, and we do also need laws to be changed to protect consumers. But if you can change consumer sentiment, that typically precedes legislative change. So I love that you know Greg is a total true believer and is approaching this from a market-based solution. I also love that she's a real servant leader. You know, like it comes across. It's a very hard thing to fake. You know, it's a nice buzzword, but if you have a big ego or if you're like the singular genius that is responsible for all the success of the organization, that's clearly not her. Like she's awesome. She's a very great leader, but she's a great leader because it sounds like she empowers the people around her. And then I love that she, you know, thinks about every little choice mattering. It's you don't build Rome in a day, you know, like you, you know, make these small decisions like taking your shoes off at the door and then actually lowers our body toxicity. I didn't really think about that and that that had that big of an impact. But ultimately, I mean, it's just the idea that, you know, all of these little decisions build up into the big thing that's happening to us in our life, whether it's our health, whether it's our work, whether it's our relationships, you know, all these things are cumulative. Um, It's all about the process that ends up creating the results. So um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Greg, for being here. This is the Art of the Hustle. I'm Jeff Rosenthal, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.